so happy to have you with us this week on the show. I invite you to find a space, grab yourself a cup of coffee or tea, your favorite beverage, sit down and be present in this conversation with Tate Barkley. Tate is a practicing attorney, a speaker, an educator, and prejudice reduction trainer, and now author of the brand new book, Sunday Dinners, Moonshine, and Men, sharing his journey from a childhood in the Deep South as a gay man when this was not permitted in good society, coming through a life of poverty to become a lawyer and move through life to a place of acceptance, releasing a lifetime of self-shame. I think there's so much in this conversation from whatever walk of life you've been on, whatever you've overcome, if you struggle with self-criticism, shame, feelings of limitation, there's so much inspiration and humor in this story, and I'm thrilled to have you with us. Thanks for joining. Living in a stressful world doesn't mean you have to give up on happiness. Instead, you can shift your perspective of stress and discover how to live your life in flow. Welcome to Happified. I'm your host, Susie Vine. Join me for inspiration and interviews with folks who are shining their light in the world in the areas of positive mindset, health, and wellness. I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome back. I am so happy to have you with us this week on the show for what I know is going to be a powerful conversation with my new friend, Tate. For years, Michael Tate Barkley lived his life in shame of living in poverty, of alcoholism and addiction, of being a closeted gay man. His story may sound familiar to anyone who struggles with feeling less than. And now he wants to share his story in the hopes that it will help others to leave their shame behind and discover the peace that they deserve. His memoir, Sunday Dinners, Moonshine and Men, shares Tate's troubled relationship with his father and his journey to overcome shame and the scarcity mindset that blocked his ability to find peace in his life. Tate offers readers a deeply personal account of his dysfunctional childhood from the backwoods of North Carolina to his family's struggles with poverty in Central Florida and their ultimate move to the boomtown of 1970s Houston, Texas. He details his attempts to repress his sexuality and control his drinking as he became a successful attorney, only to hit rock bottom and lose it all. Before he found a way to accept himself and find peace. So now Tate is a practicing attorney, speaker, author, and educator living in Houston, Texas with his husband of six years, Anson, and their dog, Emerson. Tate, thanks for making time to join me this morning. Thank you so much, Susie, for having me here. It's quite the honor to be here. I love your podcast, and I love the things that you share with your listeners. So it's my honor. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate your taking the time. Time is a priceless gift of taking a look through those. And I really feel, you know, where you're coming from in your story, all the struggles from your childhood, feeling shame, feeling less than is something that so many of us can relate to. I can myself. And in a show called Happified, I think that people tend to feel like we're just focused on the end game. We're just supposed to feel better, damn it. But right. a lot of times that journey, the strength in what we overcome right? We hear a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder, but there's post-traumatic growth that's possible when we make the choices and choose how we're going to come out of something that can be unspeakably difficult in the process. And I feel like that's what we're going to get to explore in your book. And I'm very excited to pick up a copy for myself when it comes out. September 25th is publication date. So the book will be available. Beautiful. I'm very excited to, to take a deeper look to it. And the title of it Sunday dinners, moonshine, and men. So I just want to start off at the top. Tell me a little about Sunday dinners. Yeah, Sunday dinners was, I know that for me, and maybe for many of us, there was always that safe space that that we find in the midst of what feels like oppression and fear and, and shame. And for me, that safe space was Sunday dinners at my grandma Kirkman's house. I grew up in a outside of a little town called Statesville. And my grandmother Kirkman lived in an even littler town called Stony Point. And we spent Sundays with her. We'd go to church. And after church, she would yes, we would have these big Sunday dinners that she would cook up for us. And the food was so good. And I would always help her. 
And she just paid so much attention to me. So that Sunday dinner and that time with her was my safe space in those days. So when I look back on what was 50 some years, I, I tried to think about what was really the most special thing I felt as a kid, because so much of who I am today was formed when I was a kid. And but the good part was those Sunday dinners with Grandma Kirkman. It was a very special time for me in a safe place. Beautiful. And I can certainly relate as I was sharing before we started recording. I also grew up in a small town, actually also outside of a small town. And Sunday was that family day. After church, we'd get together, we'd go to my grandmom and granddad's house and have extraordinary meals. So I can feel that sense of community there. And there's such a special bond when we're able to grow up in close proximity to our grandparents. So I'm glad she was able to be that safe space for you. She was a very special lady and and certainly one of the, the many angels that I've been blessed to have in my life anyway, but was her, my grandmother Kirkman, for sure. And so beyond that really strong sense of tradition and that strong connection with family, how else would you say that growing up in the deep South helped to form who you are, who you were then and who you still are? I was born in 1965. And so my first memories were starting in the late 60s. And the South was a place of, there were bright lines on things, very bright lines Mm -hmm. and bright lines on what kind of person you were supposed to be, how you were supposed to act, who was allowed in and who was allowed out and what you said and what you did. And for sure, you always went to church. And maybe church with grandmother Kirkman was okay, but when I wasn't with her, church other places was not. And she was my safe place. Church really wasn't because it was a hardcore message of fundamentalism that I was surrounded by at the time. And my family, really both sides of my family, they were a product of that, as were their parents. It was a generational thing that that's just what was expected of you at the time. And there were very clear rules about how you conducted yourself. And you certainly, if there was something embarrassing about you or the family, you certainly didn't share it with anybody. So it was the expectation is we just all repress ourselves in silence and say, I'm fine. You know, (laughs) those were the rules. It didn't matter whether you were fine or not. You're supposed to say I'm fine and everybody's doing fine. (laughs) And I would say that not only that, but of course it was incredibly homophobic. So when early on, when I started feeling this attraction that I had for uh, other guys, you knew immediately it was, you heard it. If you didn't hear it every Sunday, you heard it every other Sunday that being gay was an abomination and it was a sin against God and you were less than. And, and if you had those thoughts or feelings, you repress them and you don't say anything about it and you don't do anything about it. And so, though I don't think it was the intent of anybody in my family to make me feel less than, it was just the product of where I was at and the environment that that we were in. They had to follow those same rules, whoever made those rules. And so it was very different. And it was the early days of integration also. And was the South in was the landmark case of integration was in 1954, but the South was a little slow to implement it. So uh, I remember my first school in 1971, there were no black kids in that school. And uh, even though they were, they were everywhere, they were our friends, they were our neighbors, but they weren't in school with me. Mm-hmm. And so it took a, the South was slow to get on with things. And, and I saw that where I was from. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the first places that my mind went as you start working out the timeline. And certainly not as a young child, you're not aware of headlines, but there's still conversation, perhaps around the dinner table. Maybe that's not fit for conversation. My grandmother certainly had rules about what was fit for conversation and not, but to be coming into your awareness outside of yourself and have all of that happening around you, there was a lot percolating there. And not to get too much into it, but just this will just set the table of what was happening at the time. I remember 1976, I was 11, and that's a presidential year. And in North Carolina at the time, there was really just, my my families were Democrats, even though they were conservative, because in those days, Democrats were conservative. Many of them were conservative in the South. And I remember kind of the great war in the family was the Democratic primary of 1976. There was Jimmy Carter and George Wallace. Everyone knew George Wallace. He was going to stand in the schoolhouse door not to let any African-Americans in. So he was a segregationist and he was running again. And then there was Jimmy Carter, who was more open about those things. 
And that created this fissure in my family. We're, it's Wallace, it's Wallace, it's Wallace. Whereas others were saying, no, we have to move on from this. So it was an interesting time to be growing up because so where I was from was still sorting through all of that. And so I saw a lot and I heard a lot. And one of the things I can't say about my family is they drag kids to political rallies and to things like that just to listen. So it was, it was interesting to be around. Truly, truly. And what a fascinating kind of awareness again, too, that 20 years after desegregation laws, we're having this conversation. Right. Almost 50 years later, we're still having the same conversation, but really a gift to be able to, as you said, your family was open to you going to these rallies, to being right. there, listening, aware of change or staying true to or what you saw fit. And those tenets, that that form, that foundation, and again, coming from a small town, I know how it is. This is how you behave. This is what we do. The good people do this. And right. there's not a lot of question. Like you said, you're fine. We don't know what problems you might be having and we don't want to know. <laughs> we don't really want to know. And those coping mechanisms then really start early and then manifest as we've already shared. You share your story of recovering from alcoholism, but were there other ways in which you started to recognize you were protecting yourself or coping? Around about that same time, and then 76, 77, I had a best friend named Jerry and the one thing I can say for sure is where I lived at the time, there were no gay men anywhere. There was no openly gay person anywhere, not on TV, not on radio, certainly not in the church I went to, not in the schools that I went to. They weren't there, full stop. They did not exist. And, I, and around that time, I, I began realizing that I was attracted to other guys and and you don't really know what to do with that. I was fortunate in that I had a best friend. My first experiences were with my best friend. And he was a best friend in every sense of the word. And he had similar feelings, you know, and and we experimented during that time. But of course, the rule was we can't tell anybody. And I remember him his name's Jerry. And I remember we were we had begun experimenting and I was having those feelings like, boy, this is just great to, to be with him and to and with someone that I trusted. What was great about it is I was experimenting with someone that I trusted. And I remember we were walking up a dirt road. He lived on a trailer up on a hill, a mobile home. And we lived at the time in a trailer park down the way. And I was walking him home on that dirt road when we were midsummer. And I remember he put his arm around me and he said, I just want to make sure what we're doing is not homosexual, is it? And I remember thinking to myself, it, it is. And because he followed that up with, I don't want to do anything like that because it just would be wrong. And my immediate response was, no, homosexuals do these other things. We're just doing these things. And I knew I was fibbing with him because I, was in, I didn't want it to end. But it did because we both began feeling guilty. We were old enough to realize that, in fact, what we were feeling for each other and doing with each other was exactly what they thought was wrong, was an abomination. So we quit. And I remember when he was my best friend, and I remember when my dad made the proclamation that we were going to move to Houston. I walked up the dirt road to go see Jerry and tell him. And I remember the last time I saw him, we gave each other a good hug. It wasn't the kind of hug that people that were kind of lovers gave. It was a good best friend hug. And I knew that my secret would be safe with him and his would be safe too. And over time, we've stayed in touch a little bit and things have worked out for both of us. But we knew it had to stop because it was wrong. This was an abomination and we couldn't talk to anybody else about it, and we couldn't do it anymore. As you're saying, with the, the religious dogma being drilled into you from so long ago, we don't know what it is, but we know that it's wrong, right? To be in that gray space, is this it? We're not doing, it doesn't feel wrong. How can we be wrong? I think that's something so deeply honest that so many people have struggled with who have come from religious families and the fear that the family holds of going against what religion says is is right. correct 
And that's devastating. I had a dear family friend who lived for decades without sharing his truth. And it brought me so much joy and relief when he finally came to a point where he could live openly. But I understood the way that his parents saw things. And that struggle is something that, I mean, countless people have gone through throughout time. And as you said, there's nowhere else you can see a model of it in that era. And it's so interesting. I remember when was Will and Grace on like the early, the aughts. And now we have the Will and Grace generation. And then Don't Ask, Don't Tell started falling out of the military. And I come from a military family. And so it's, again, interesting to see how so much of this is still such recent history. And we've come a long way, not nearly far enough, but the decades are spinning by as we're grappling with what does this mean and how does religion reset itself where it's willing to? Or how do people find their own path and come out of the shame? Yeah. And I think that one of the things when you grow up in the culture of whether it be the small town South or the small towns period, and where there's the dictates of religion dominate daily life, the struggle really is is that whatever the purported sin is, is how you're identified. That's Mm -hmm. who you are. If you ever are an adulterer, then you're an adulterer. If you're gay, then you're you're not gay, you're a homosexual. And you're an abomination, or if ever you drank too much, then you're a drunk. So whatever the purported sin is that you've committed, then that is who you are. You are branded that, and you are immediately less than. And the expectation is not only that we're going to treat you less than, is that if you want acceptance, you have to treat yourself less than. You have to admit that you're less than. You have to admit that you're an abomination. That's the only way we're going to suggest to you that we might forgive you. That is the only way you're allowed to find the light is to admit that you're less than and that you're a sinner. And and maybe there's forgiveness, but I could tell from when you looked around whenever I was growing up, those churches really never forgave anybody. You were no. always whatever your sin was. That's right. That's, <laughs> forgiveness is just God's work. The rest of us are keeping <laughs> That's count. Right. That's right. <laughs> and so you true. mentioned too, drinking too much, you're a drunk, but I think that there's a high level of accepted yeah. drinking. And so it really had to tip the scales before you would be branded a drunk. But so much, again, of that reconciling with yourself, finding peace, numbing out as now we we recognize through the COVID era, a lot more people started to drink a little bit more as we needed to just tune out a little bit. That range of accepted alcoholism, frankly, at what age did you start coping with alcohol and how did you start to recognize that it was holding you back? Yeah, I'll say my dad was a drinker. He was an active uh, alcoholic uh, for as long as I can remember. And so he drank, even though his mom, my mom frowned on it and he drank. And we actually came from a family of moonshiners. My great grandmother, Barkley, was a moonshiner during Prohibition. She ran three stills on Barkley land down near Third Creek. So she actually had the stills and she moonshined and she was proud of it. I never met her, but I heard much about her because she's legendary. She was a a tough woman walking around with a shotgun and she had three stills and she was going to make it in the era of prohibition. And in our family, I, I talk about the moonshine because my dad ran moonshine. He was very proud of the fact that his job, his senior year and just after was he ran moonshine out of the mountains in, you know, throughout the state. And uh, there's even a story in the book. I opened the book with a story of my dad running moonshine just to give you a flavor of what he's like. And because he he was quite a colorful and formidable character. And I say all that in that drinking was always around me and it was shamed, but my dad was shamed for drinking, but my dad was shamed for being a traveling salesman. He, he felt the shame too. And he just coped with it by drinking. And so it seemed okay to me. And I can tell you when I first felt, I began to cope with drinking We moved, my dad announced at the end of my sixth grade year, which had been a really good year for me. I made straight A's for the first time. I played football, which was also another expectation that boy kids were supposed to do. You were playing football or you were a wuss. Full stop. That's that. Or you're just not tough. And so I played football. Dad wanted me to, and I did it. And we won a championship. I made straight A's for the first time. I had struggled in school before. 
So I was having a good year and now dad's announcing we're moving and I had my best friend and I did definitely didn't want to leave him. But when dad moved us to Houston, there were five of us and he had $246 and we wound up in this enormous apartment complex in South Houston. It was called the Skyline South Apartment Complex. And there was a bayou that ran, bayous run all through Houston. And there was a bayou behind the back of that apartment complex. And one evening, one of my friends, Bruce, who worked at the putt-putt place next door, scored a case of Miller High Life, the champagne of beers. If you remember your beers from those days, they had these little seven ounce ponies and they asked me if I wanted one. And we were back behind the bayou. It was hot, like it's always hot and humid here in Houston, it seems. And we were back behind the bayou, just hiding from the world. That's what we would do back there, just hide from the world. And I remember by the time I got through about half of that, beer, I felt this feeling of relief go through me, Susie, that I'd never Mm. experienced at the time. I was in seventh grade and I just had my 13th birthday and my 12th birthday. And I remember the feeling that came through me. And then I had another one and I felt my first beer buzz. And it was like this great weight had been lifted off my shoulder. It's like drinking the stuff made me feel courageous and happy. There was a water pipe that ran across the bayou to the other side. And all the other guys would always walk across this thin water pipe over the bayou. Because if you fell, you went about 10 feet down into the bayou. And I had never had the courage to walk across it because I knew that I was going to fall. But after I finished that second beer, I walked across it several times. I honestly thought I was Superman. I had found Nirvana with this alcohol. I felt so good. And it's like the oppression of the world just lifted off me. We were constantly broke in those days. And there were five of us living in this tiny apartment in amidst all this concrete in Houston, which was so starkly different from where we came from, where we were around country all the time, trees and pastures and and fields all the time. And, and, And frankly, I didn't like it. And I went to a school that was was for a tough area of town. It's like I write in the book. You had to pay attention at school there because there were real gangs and real people that could be dangerous even at that age. So when I got my first beer bus, it's like it all disappeared. And I'll tell you, I chased that feeling until the day I got sober because it was never as good as that night. Now mm. I had some buzzes and I had some good times. But I never had a buzz as good as that first one where the world just was lifted off my shoulder and I courageously walked across that pipe and I felt on top of the world. That's how booze made me feel. So I immediately had a new best friend. Fascinating. And and you say that as much as you chased it, that it was the unattainable prize, right? right? And I imagine that makes it even more enigmatic and desirable to keep coming. Maybe this is the buzz. Maybe I'm going to come back to that state of bliss and relief and peace. In fact, that's a great word. I call this chapter bliss on the bayou. And it's because it's about not only my first months here in Houston in 1977 when we moved here, but my first interaction with alcohol. And I just flat loved it. There was no doubt about it. I loved it. And, and though obviously I, connived and organized and planned from then on how do I get access to the stuff and it really became like a job for me how do I drink and as I got to high school I was on the debate team and I had to have a very serious conversation with my dad who who wanted me of course to play high school football because now it's even worse. We're in Texas now in high school football. That is, I mean, it is the thing. So if you're going to be a man again, we're back to to being a Mm -hmm. man again, you're going to be a man again, and you're going to be tough. You got to play football. And when I did through intermediate school, I, I played football when we got to Houston in intermediate school, but I couldn't play Friday night football and go to Friday night debate tournament. And I knew that debate in speaking which I had in school was more of a way out for me than football ever would be. I knew that then. 
And so I have this talk about dad I want to debate and begrudgingly he agrees. But the good thing about that is I had a friend with a fake ID in a car my freshman year in high school. And he'd buy cigarettes and no one would ever cart him. So we could get all the beer and the, I don't know if you heard of Boone's Farm apple wine, so cheap as you can get <laughs> rock gut stuff, but boy, he bought it by the gallons. <laughs> and that became my life. I mean, Help to fill I, in the bayou. That's exactly right. Thank you, Bayou. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so that's how it happened. And that began what I did. And I had the freedom of all these extracurricular events I was involved in. So it was like I was unsupervised. And so it was great. So I drank all through high school. I wish I could say I didn't, but I did. I drank all through high school and a lot. And so then you had this nudge that speaking was something that was going to serve you all the way back then. And did you know coming from high school that you were interested in going into law? Or is that something that with your abilities speaking and debating, was there someone who guided you in that direction? Oh my goodness. It's a pretty big step from your roots. Yeah, it is. And I, and I have to tell you, I know I referred earlier to the angels in my life. And I got to tell you about two angels in my life when it comes to that. You are required to take public speaking in seventh grade. So when we landed in Houston, I had to take public speaking. And the, the lady there was Miss Schimmel. And Miss Schimmel at South Houston Intermediate School, she told me, she says, you're good at this when you slow down and you're patient. She says, you've got a little bit of an accent, so you need to speak slower, but you're really good at this. And I would like for you to agree to take it again in eighth grade because it's an elective then. You have to choose to take a speech class. So when I moved to the next school in eighth grade, I took speaking and I had a wonderful teacher there by the name of Miss Moreau. She was Cajun from Louisiana, loved her to death, had a wonderful accent. And she took an instant interest in me and began working with me speaking. And I used to love speaking. It was the only time I wasn't shy and fearful was when I was up there speaking. And one day, Miss Moreau uh, came to me and she said, there's a lady in the back of the class and she's coming down to watch my class, but mainly she's coming down to watch you because I told her about you because I think you would be good at debate in high school. And I think you would be good at persuasive extent and all these competition areas in high school. You'll be good at it. So after I gave the speech, that I was supposed to give that day. This lady, her name was Miss Copeland. She was the debate coach from the high school. She pulled me aside and she says, I think you'd be a good debater, but I don't have time to teach you to debate. We're a competitive team and I need you hit the ground running. She was a lady of candor, I assure you. And <laughs> I said, then how do I learn if you're not going to teach me? She said, that's a good question. You need to go to Baylor University debate camp. Every year they hold a debate camp and they will teach you how to debate. They will help you build an affirmative case, which you will need. And you will learn so many things and you'll be among the best and the brightest in Texas at high school debate. So you really need to go to that. And when she told me that, Susie, my heart fell to my feet. My family did not have the money. Right. So I asked her, I said, does it cost? And she said, yes, and it can be pricey. Anyway, uh, I said, okay. And I got a note. I, I was In those days, you took notes home to your parents. You may still do that. I don't know. But I think you get an email now. I though. think so. <laughs> but Maybe anyway, even a text. <laughs> I know, but I didn't carry my note to my dad. And my dad read the note. My dad was working in the refineries by then. When we came to Texas, I talk about it in the book. My family joined what I call the refinery culture. Mm. Here on the Gulf Coast, particularly in Houston, working folks, most of us are in the refineries or have something to do with the petrochemical industry here in Houston. It's enormous. And it's a big driver of our economy here. So my dad was working in the refineries at that time. We did not have a phone. Uh, we couldn't afford a phone. So dad loads me up into the car and we drive to the convenience store and he uses the pay phone and he calls Miss Morrow, my speech teacher. He gets back in the car after the call and he says, this lady, that's how my dad thought, this lady wants you to go to this debate camp. And that's all he said. Mm. And then we drove home. And then I didn't hear anything about it. And then two weeks later, the our emergency number 
for school was our next door neighbor. So our next door neighbor's knocking on the door, telling my dad, you got an emergency call from Dobie High School. And turned out that was the debate coach. So dad goes over to our neighbor's house, gets the call, comes back. And he says, Bubba, that's what they called me, Bubba. These two ladies really want you to go to Baylor debate camp. <laughs> and, and apparently it costs $425, which is a lot of money in 1978 money. And he says it costs $425. And I remember he looked at me and he said, do you really want to do this? And I said, yes, dad, I really want to do it. I think I'll be good at it. And then he, I remember him saying, because my dad had been in trouble with the law off and on most of his mm. adult life. And he said, I guess it would be good training to be a lawyer to do this. And boy, do we need a lawyer in this family. So he loads me up in the car again. We go to the convenience store. Why we couldn't go to Charlie's to use his phone, I don't know. But dad was prideful that way. Um, and he calls the debate coach. We come back to the house and he said, son, I've saved $125. I've got it saved and it's in there in the closet. Miss Morrow and Miss Copeland are going to put in the rest of the money to send you to debate camp. So you're going to get to go. So I might still tear up when I think about it. I really do. Because these were public school teachers. It's not like they were rich. Right. These are and Miss Copeland, she'd only met me once, and really, and but yeah, so I had two public educators to help my dad send me to Baylor Debate Camp. And when I got to Baylor Debate Camp, after that two weeks, I knew exactly what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a debater, and I wanted to be a lawyer, and I, and this was my way out. I knew then that this was my way out because we were still living hand to mouth. Dad had a decent job, but. We were still living hand to mouth. And so it was a big deal. It was my breakout. It was my moment if, if, of where somebody gave me a hand up and it made an enormous difference in, in my life right then. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> Dad and I still love that. But... that I quit football, but I think he got it. <laughs> but this is probably what I needed to do. And if, since all of this about going to camp, that's a pretty valid opposition to that. That Friday night commitment's a hard one to overcome. That's right. And it's so funny. I the words that land in us at that point, we could sure use a lawyer in the family. I don't know if it had ever dawned on you before that moment, but then right. that little bit, right? This could be how I can help my family. My family right. works so hard for me. And then there you go. That's right. And yeah. so where did you go to college? Was that close to home as well in Houston? Yeah, or? I did speech and debate, forensic speech and debate, competitive, all through high school. And it was a successful career in high school for sure. And I won some scholarship money in speech contests. I was a good student, Susie, but I wasn't when a scholastic scholarship kind of student. If I was going to get scholarship money, it was going to be through writing or speaking. So I got some scholarship money. I saved some. I worked. I was a dishwasher and a food prep and a cook at Longhorn Cafe during high school. And I saved as much of that money as I could to go to college. And I got into the University of Texas at Austin mm. with the intent of going to law school. I'll tell you, I was exhausted of not having any money by that point because we never had any money to do anything. I went to college with the intent is I've got to get into law school and I studied to get into law school and I avoided anything that would be hard. So my GPA would suffer too bad. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I don't mind being honest. Coping mechanisms run deep, right? I am <laughs> not going to miss my shot. <laughs> I'm not, this is, we're not going to mess it up with business calculus and stuff like that. Oh, no, ma'am. <laughs> so I got finish line. in Texas at the University of Texas. Most of the world called it a political science degree, but at UT, we called it a government degree. So I got a degree in government at the University of Texas and then went on to law school. <laughs> and, 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 and I need not tell you what a good time college was for me, because by that point in time, right. my, my appetite for booze was incessant. So it was a challenging four years because drinking can affect your grades. And that was the great struggle. And, and layered on that is 
it was the, uh, I had reached the point, it was the early 80s, and Austin was luckily, it was a fairly liberal city for Texas. It was, it was certainly the most liberal city in Texas at that time and probably today. And there was a, a, a gay and lesbian infrastructure there if you wanted to come out, but I just never did. And uh, it was, despite every opportunity, I just couldn't do it. And by that time, I was drinking so much because it eased the repression I was putting on myself. And it was the dawn of the AIDS crisis at the time. We were just learning that something was happening mm -hmm. and people were dying. And that even scared me even more, even when I started thinking about it. So I just doubled down on repressing these feelings. And so, yeah. And when I talk about, th there's a real war that goes on with me. And I talk a lot about that in, throughout the book and why I made the decision not to go to a Texas law school at first. I decided to do my first year of law school up in Oregon. And everyone looked at me like, what in the hell possessing you to go to <laughs> Oregon? Even in 1987, when I made that decision, I knew Oregon to be a lot more open place. And I had all these big plans. Come out up there. It'll be okay. I'll get my feet underneath me before I go home and tell everybody. And then once I got to Oregon, I chickened out again. And so it would be, it's, it's, and for a lot of reasons, the wrestling with it, I talk about a lot in the book, how I wrestled with it and in how I was driving back to Houston after my first year of law school, like, why, how come you couldn't do it? And mm. so I became a master of shaming myself, Susie. I became a master at it. I didn't need anyone else to shame me. By the time I made it to college, I didn't need anybody to give help with it. I had figured out exquisite ways to make myself feel less than by that point in time. And it was a long journey overcoming that. And for me, and I had to get sober to do it. You also have in your career worked as a prejudice reduction trainer and teaching ethics. And I'm fascinated by how you you came to that specialty. Is it a direct response to growing up and harboring all of this shame and struggling with who you are and your relationship with the world? What is that what called you to these areas? Yeah, let me, the short answer to that is yes, in that I finally, I had built up, I moved in with a buddy of mine in, in 92 up in Arlington, Texas. He was a buddy of mine from law school and we were together about a year, but I managed to build a very lucrative personal injury practice up in Arlington during that time. And it was really the, by 30 years old, I had a beautiful home, a lot of money. I was rolling, rolling. And I had money very early in my life after having a childhood of, mm. of, poverty. And boy, I did not know what to do with that money, really. So boy, did I have a good time. And as you might imagine, and but all of that fell apart and I lost everything due to my alcoholism. Mm. I had reached a point by 1999 where I drank continuously throughout the day and I had absolutely no will to do anything but drink. When I finally got sober, and came back, I had to come back home to Houston, live with my family. So after making so much money and being so successful, I was living with my baby sister after rehab and my brother-in-law, and they'd only been married three months. So imagine your alcoholic brother-in-law, fresh out of rehab, coming to live with you and your new wife of three months. That's what my poor brother-in-law had to put up with, but he's another angel. So anyway, I started crawling my way back. Hmm. And during that time, I said, I don't want to practice law anymore. I don't think I can stay sober as a litigation attorney. I was a litigator. Uh, I tried cases, still do. And too stressful, too much riding on you. I can't do that. So I started a master's degree at the University of Houston in speech communications. I said, I've been doing speech all my life. It saved my life in high school. Let me teach it. Let me learn about it more. As I was going through that master's program, the University of Houston basically offered me the, because uh, I had my law degree, the opportunity to teach a course called Communications Law and Ethics. And every undergraduate at U of H in communications had to take this ethics course about law and ethics. I 
was still basically living with a friend. So I started teaching and uh, I, I feel sorry for those students that were in my first class because I was so hard, uh, uh, but uh, I eased up a little bit afterwards, but I started <laughs> teaching ethics and I'm like, you know, when I started teaching ethics and taking it to heart and trying to share mm. it with these young folks, I looked back on my life and I realized that within ethical behavior is really in a lot of ways, the liberation that we're looking for to always tell the truth, to be of service to others, to do what you say you're going to do, even if there's nothing in it for you to the best of your ability. That's the phrase I would give my students, the three key principles of a fiduciary. That's how I taught ethics, using the model of a fiduciary, someone who is entrusted to act for the benefit of another. It's a very sacred obligation we lawyers and others have, is the fiduciary obligation. So that's how I taught ethics. Others didn't. I started looking at these others and they were reading St. Thomas Aquinas and all of this other stuff. And I said, this stuff is just too hard to read. It's too preachy and moralistic. So right. I chose to use this approach of teaching ethics as a fiduciary. And you had three principal duties, obedience, loyalty, and care. And basically what that means, do what you say you're going to do. Do what you say you're going to do, even if there's nothing in it for you, to the best of your ability. And as I started growing in that, I actually wrote a little short book in that for my students. I was just coming out. I was newly sober. I, I still struggled being around gay people. I still felt a lot of shelf shame, even though I was openly gay. I didn't want to be around gay people because I thought they weren't like me. I am special. I'm different. Look at me. I'm tough and straight acting and blah, 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 blah. When I had all that crap rolling around in my head mm -hmm. and I finally started going to my AA meetings at the Lambda Center, which was a place that housed a lot of meetings for those in the queer community. And once I started being a part of the queer community and my friends and my support group came in, all of that really fell away. But I saw there was still so much prejudice and bias. So that's what prompted me to become a prejudice reduction trainer. And, and it's work that I'm proud of. And it's work that I do when I get the opportunity to do it. But I wanted to know about it. How do you reduce prejudice? How do I reduce my own prejudice about me, for God's sake? You know what I mean? I, I talk to so many people now because I think once you're open and honest about things, about who you are and what you are, people come to you and they want to speak. And I've learned that so many people like me, I wasn't the only one that had developed this exquisite ability to self-shame and to self-hate. And when you tell the world, that's what I did to myself, and I'm trying not to do it anymore, then people come talk to you. And, and I love being a part of that work and of eliminating hate and eliminating just how we self-flagellate ourselves mm -hmm. so much of the time. I think I told you before the show, I still think it's one of my goals. And I hope it's everybody's goals is to be your own best friend. At some point in time, I'm getting better. But I'm still a work in progress where that committee in my head will give me a that a boy every now and then instead of saying, you should have done this. You should have done that. You could have done that. If you turned to left here instead of going on that little committee that I had, that little committee, drinking helped me shut them up a lot mm -hmm. of the time. Too. But now I have to do it without drugs and alcohol. So, you know, I have to do it by talking to you. <laughs> and being honest in other people. That's how I get my committee to shut up. <laughs> and I think it's fascinating it's when we can shine a light on that. And I think it's something that's so desperately needed. And so that's why I wanted to ask about that training that you've discovered, created, that you share. I think it's something that's all of us could benefit from. I, I was really moved. The first time I was in a workshop and someone says, think of the three people you admire most in the world and what are traits that you admire in them? Think of the three people you hate the most in the world and what do you despise in them? And you write it down. And then you come back around to it. You get distracted, you clear the slate and you come back and they say, how are these traits in the people that you despise the most present in you? And it's shining a light on it. You recognize, like, why are you so reactionary to that behavior? Mm -hmm. How is that present in you? And until we can be that honest with ourselves, 
we get to sit in judgment on everybody else and think that we're better than them because we're different. Mm -hmm. When you can finally shine a light on it and recognize that we're not different, we're not apart and start to break through that preconception and these prejudices and recognize how much more alike we all are and how worthy we all are, right? We're worthy of being our best friend. And I think shame is a really powerful tool that might come from our childhood or our upbringing, you know, as a, to keep us in line. And when we can shake that loose and again, start to take that honest perspective of ourselves, it's just, it's a total, it's not just a game changer, like it's life-changing. It's a pivotal moment. That it is. And you know, I have a little acronym I use whenever I talk to people and because I've it's been a, a kind of a long journey. And I sat down between the prejudice reduction training and between what I've learned in recovery and AA and what I've learned. I've had one-on-one -on -one therapy as well in the past. And I think what I've learned, I call it heals, H-E-A-L-S, honesty, acceptance, empathy, love, and service. And, and I remind myself of those. I try to remind myself of those five things every day. And it's easy to remember, you know, and because that's what I have to do. I have to be honest with you and you with me, but I can't do that if I'm not honest with me. I'll never be able to tell you the truth if I'm not honest about who I am. How can I ever tell you the truth? And it's scary when you tell people the truth about yourself. And it doesn't have to be about being gay or anything. It can be anything. We There's always something that people latch on to, I feel like, in themselves to feel less than about. And they don't, and none of us need to, but we are embarrassed and we don't want to talk about it. And one of the things I hope this book helps is I put it out there because I can't feel better about that. You know, I can't, I have to tell you my truth totally, fully and completely so that you'll understand it. And one of the things that I learned in this is my dad could be violent. He was alcoholic. He could be violent, incredibly narcissistic. He was an extraordinarily difficult man. He had his good moments, no doubt about it, but he could be an extraordinarily difficult man. And I had done step work, 12-step work for a long time. And if you would have asked me, I would have said, I did my 12-step work. I've made my amends. And everyone's forgiven. And I'm forgiven myself. Hey, look at me. But as I was writing this book, Susie, I realized that I really hadn't forgiven my dad. I really hadn't. But by the time it was done, I had. And apparently I needed to do a little more work in recovery. <laughs> and I, boy, I realized that as I started this book, because I started it because I was still feeling things about the death of my dad in 2012. So I started it in kind of 2013, picking it up and putting mm -hmm. it down. And I, that's what my higher power drove me to do. I was feeling these things about my dad, conflicted about him. And I had to write. And so I wrote a memoir about us and the ups and the downs and the ugliness and the joy. And, and I can honestly say I've forgiven him and I love him. But before I start putting pen to paper on this, I, I couldn't say that, not honestly. Yeah. And, and we say, <laughs> we say that the people who, who pretend to be, have wisdom, that, that forgiveness is really a gift for yourself, right? You don't have to carry that with you anymore. Holding someone else accountable for what they've done to you in the past just doesn't resolve anything. You're not teaching them anything. Right. But regardless of that, to come to a point where you can look at a parent as a human that has weaknesses, that has made mistakes, but is human and to the best of their ability, done the best that they can, right? Or whatever misintentions, but but getting that perspective, especially in our relationship with our parents, it's something that I've worked through too. And context is so powerful and it's so healing to remove parents from that position where they had so much power over us and just recognize that they're human. Mm -hmm. And and I'm glad that through this process, you were able to, because it sounds like there's plenty of reason. I don't know. Maybe no one deserves forgiveness, but at the same time to relieve yourself of that load, to get to that point where you could release that mm. is, and I feel like even he's not on this plane, but maybe flying a little lighter because knowing that that energy still isn't there, that connection has been released. 
And the understanding there. I would agree. And because you're so right, forgiveness is really about ourselves. Because if we're carrying that around, and when in AA, there's a saying that says resentment, they say resentment's the number one offender, and yeah. uh, which it'll make you drink. Because the old saying, oh. or resentment's like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die. It's is you drink over things like that, and you use drugs over things like that, or I do. And so I have to work through them. And, and sort of liberate its hold over me so I can be whole and complete and the best person I can be. I knew this was going to be a really powerful conversation. I'm really glad that you, you, you came so open and available to really explore because I don't think we got to half the questions that I had planned for you, but I think that we went to all the right places. And I'm so excited for this book to be available because I think on so many different levels, coming from small town America, growing up in the South through such a contentious time, relationships with parents, overcoming our childhood and our self-limitations. I think there's going to be something that speaks to absolutely everybody in this book, and I'm thrilled to get a chance to read it. And we'll have your information in the show notes too, so people can find your website, stay in touch, follow along as you continue your journey and create and share your work in these different avenues. I love multi-potentialites. Like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I, I show up and try to serve where there seems to be a need. So I'm thrilled to be connected with you now in our journey. I tell you what, it was a wonderful experience. And Susie, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. It has been my pleasure. Wishing you a wonderful day. I hope things cool off for you there in Houston. <laughs> so do we. <laughs> and you take good care of yourself. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about living life with less stress and more flow, visit happifiedlife.com. Subscribe on your favorite player to catch the next episode as soon as it's out. Sharing really is caring, so please rate and review the show while you're there. And if you know someone else who would love it, please pass it along. Until next time, my friends, keep on shining.